Now entering the Bitcoin Podcast Network. Ether is the perfect drug for Las Vegas. In this town, they love a drunk. Fresh meat. Come on, buddy. So they put us through the turnstiles and turned us loose inside. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dose of Ether. This is your host, Lucian, and joining me again this week is Evan Van Ness. What's up, Evan? Howdy. How's it going? Well, it's a cold, foggy day, and by cold I mean it's 70 degrees outside. But it is it is dark and kind of cloudy. This whole daylight savings time ending thing, not cool. Why do we have to end daylight savings? There's just something wrong with that. Didn't that allow us to get like an extra an hour of sleep yesterday? Yeah, but then it's then it's nighttime at 5 p.m. for the rest of the, the for four months. Yeah, that's true. I'm completely against daylight savings time, even when it works in our favor. It's like you don't even notice it. What is an extra hour worth of sleep when you're changing time zones more often than daylight savings time gets to help you. Hold on. You're against daylight. You're one of those people. No, don't tell me that against (laughs) daylight savings time. Yeah. That's what you just said. Abolish it, man. Keep a standardized clock. Change it. once. No, I mean, they, well, I agree with that, but they should get rid of non daylight savings time. It should always be daylight savings time. I don't know the difference. Well, daylight savings time is what it is in the summer. Like, hmm. it gets dark later. Okay. I like that. When people say they want to get rid of daylight savings time, I always wonder whether they're telling me that they are anti-daylight savings time or anti-clocks changing. Because I'm cool with the no clocks changing, but the whole it gets dark early at night, that drives me nuts. <laughs> I mean, it's not the fact I'm that triggered it gets, right now. It's not the fact that it gets dark early at night that bothers me. It's the fact that it gets light early in the morning when I'm trying to sleep. <laughs> so I mean, okay, so you, it sounds like you you are actually you want daylight savings time to be made year round, but yeah, I actually still don't know the difference of it. <laughs> it's it'd just be nice to be able to wake up with sunrise and obviously not go to sleep with sunset but (laughs) as long as i could naturally wake up and it feels like a reasonable hour to wake up then i'm fine with it there you go you know what we need we need some sort of we need some sort of bribery on ethereum system for politicians that vote to make daylight savings time year-round that's what we need this is what Ethereum was called called for. No, to people listening to this in the future, this is called satire. If I could bribe people in politics, I would bribe them to make logical, reasonable, reasonable decisions. Is that like? It's like not even exactly. So like... make it the same time year round. Okay, that that works. <laughs> I actually heard this really interesting perspective on corruption and bribery. And someone argued that bribery doesn't really work because otherwise people would do it more often, right? 
and this like massive disproportionate gain that people get right for example like the amount that amazon basically spends on lobbying versus how much tax breaks they get like if it had a one-to-one correlation more people would do it and the more there would be even more money in politics (laughs) but it's like the way bribery currently works is that it's so unpredictable and it has such a marginal effect on elections that people don't bribe as much as they would if it made like economic sense and if it was directly correlated to elections yeah i mean i would argue that we don't have nearly enough money in politics i think that's like one of the problems i think we spend like two times as much on peanut consumption annually as we do on politics i think we're talking about the same uh same argument actually like the same article that's interesting could be yeah Uh, yeah, it was a it was a contrarian article when i read it and the idea being that like if we cared as much as we do about peanut consumption as you were saying as we do about like a properly functioning democracy, then more people would contribute to the political system. But yeah. Yeah. I find it interesting. Anyway, and a compelling you, you broke up there, but yeah, public, public goods unsolved in the legacy world yeah. as well as the web three world. <laughs> How <laughs> was that for an attempt to make this uh mildly on topic? <laughs> mildly on topic, yes. It's <laughs> we are on the Bitcoin Podcast Network, so listener listeners are probably used to, you know, starting off the show with you know, random commentary only mildly related to any sort of Bitcoin, Ethereum, whatever the name of the show is. I actually got called out by one of my childhood friends when I was home this past weekend. And he goes, whatever subject we talk about, if you talk for more than 10 minutes, you're talking about blockchain again. (laughs) Nice. I got called out. (laughs) Nice. Good for you. You know, it's funny. I don't actually know if I talk about this stuff all that often with like my non uh yeah it's weird i know some people i guess is all they can talk about with their with people they know in the real world but like um i guess so one thing is like i don't really i work from home so i don't really interact with that many people in my everyday life um and the people i talk to i tend to talk to pretty irregularly so like i tell them what i'm doing but i don't spend a lot of time trying to like explain it to them unless they ask because it's you know part of a you know, bigger catch-up conversation, I guess. I do feel that my personal life and my professional life have been kind of molding together, especially with the increased amount of travel and the increased amount of online conversations that I participate in. I guess it it does kind of get molded together um, for the better or worse. But yeah, I mean, hey, one million doves. Like, I think it's great. Like, I, you know, I don't know. I, we all, we all need to contribute in our own way. I tend to like think of like more scalable things, but I should probably do more of the direct sales element as well. <laughs> <laughs> you do a lot of indirect promotion of um, developer resources and you kind of are a hub for knowledge in a sense the week in ethereum is basically like 
the way I keep up with other people's work. Cool. Yeah, that's that's what it's supposed to be. That's my that's my contribution, such as it is. So what um, what kind of topics stood out to you the most this week? What stood out the most this week? Um, hmm. That's a good question. There was a lot of uh, developer stuff in uh, Week in Ethereum this week. It's sort of interesting how it seems to like ebb and flow between what gets announced when. Like, there was a, also like more stuff on the app layer than maybe other times. But I think the you know the conference schedule and deadlines for releasing means that certain things get released at certain times and not as much at other times. Um, one thing that I think really stood out to me was the uh, you know the the tether flipping occurred this week, and I think it had been a long time coming. I'm, you know tether had started moving um, all of its you know a substantial amount of its assets away from Bitcoin for a while now. And onto Ethereum, and even like a tiny little bit onto you know uh, centralized uh, AWS chains. Um, but uh, you know the tether flipping occurred, so there's more more dollar value uh, and euro value and and yuan value as on ETH and Bitcoin. But you know on the same week that that happened. Oh, and I should also say, like, the number of transactions is much higher on Ethereum than 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 Bitcoin too, which you know probably makes sense um, because people actually use Ethereum. Uh, but the uh, the Stripe guy, uh, Patrick McKenzie, I think his name is, wrote this this long, super long, scathing article that basically TLDR was everything Bitfinex has been saying for years is correct. So I uh, actually the, like the line in in the newsletter that I quoted was, "Tether is the eternal accounting internal accounting system for the largest fraud since Madoff." <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, I you know I, I actually don't really know if I'm as I certainly wouldn't put it that way. I don't I haven't followed it that closely. I will say that. Things on the frontier, like like crypto, is tend to have shady people. So like it's definitely definitely like rings possible to me. But the flip side is is that payment processors are they make it even shadier, right? Because so many banks, you know, there was the Obama thing about like don't like which basically directed banks not to deal with payment processing for like anybody and like gambling or porn and, and like all sorts of thing, all sorts of things. Um, so like ever since then, like the, the banking system is even more risk averse to dealing with anybody on the margins of society. And because of that, it makes it like, it pushes all of the payment processing even further into these gray zones. And so I think he did a good job of documenting that all of these things were in dark gray zones, but I wouldn't absolutely be a hundred percent certain that like 
I don't know. It was all black market activity. You know what I mean? Like some of which like he flat out claimed that it was, you know, that some of the payment processors were like money launderers for, you know, drug traffickers. Like, look, that could be, or that, you know, it could be that like a little bit touched. Like I, I have no idea, no way to, to, to determine any of that. Um, but when you do have payment processing volume that you need to needs to occur and nobody legit will do it like shrug emoji you know what i mean like i yeah. i actually sympathize with them a little bit there are some um prominent people within the bitcoin community that actually have already gone to jail and gotten out um for basically laundering drug money you're talking about charlie shrum i am yeah <laughs> Yeah, I mean, his his was like a, you know, an undercover agent was like, hey, I'm going to, I'm going to, I got some drug sales I need to launder through your system. Like, is that cool? And Charlie was rather naively, it was like, sure, man. <laughs> he like hooked someone up in Florida. He's like, yeah, I'll put you in touch with someone in Florida. But, I mean, I think that like it's been a while think, since I looked at it. But I think he's even like there's even emails where it's like the undercover person literally like repeats over again like, "I'm doing drug deals. Is it okay if I launder it through your system?" Right. <laughs> and he literally says like, "Yeah, that's great." Like, yeah. Uh, I I'm mean, pretty it was sure also that, like way... don't don't quote me, but fairly confident. <laughs> it was also very early times in uh, Bitcoin's history as well, um, but. It's the yeah, tether I mean, they story. They just had the, the, the startup story culture, is, right? Uh, Do anything that makes you get growth, and Bitcoin combined with startup culture meant that they they made some mistakes. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, it's um, the the article regarding tether, though. The part that bothers me is if the connection between Bitfinex and Tether is true, that means. Basically, the losses that Bitfinex incurred from their exchange hack were then socialized and printed in the form of Tether that's not appropriately backed with reserves, which means that anyone who actually uses and trades Tether on their platform potentially has a hole in their balance sheet that originated from the original hack. So... The question of whether you can have a stable coin that is not one-to-one -one pegged, I think, is going to be the ultimate deciding factor. And in the end, they are getting sued by the New York Attorney General. I do not envy them at all. Um, at the same time, they are still afloat. Their doors are open. The There is no indictment. There hasn't been... A cease and desist order um and if i'm not mistaken there have previously been u.s exchanges that use tether i don't know if there are any more though but it's yeah we we actually linked the tether article in the show notes uh, in yeah. the last article but it's almost as if the flippening with tether in them purchasing more ether is so is that people I don't fully understand how Tether themselves have a balance sheet or how a flippening occurs. I did look briefly at the article that you posted regarding the Tether flippening. Um, 
but essentially they have close to five billion dollars of total liability uh, total assets 4.5 billion dollars worth of total assets of which two billion is in ether it's on okay got it so it's in circulation on ethereum got it okay that makes that makes a little bit of sense right so it's right. not that it's like backed by ether obviously it's not that's the whole argument it's not backed by anything <laughs> but right. essentially um it's being traded on ether and i'm not familiar what is omni o-m-n-i it's a master coin is it okay i've never so used it's it. just the it, well it's it's like a the 20 the the 2012 like layer on top of bitcoin they changed their name to omni hmm. funny enough so i mean the types of coins that they um they have so it's omni ethereum of course but there's also Tron on the list with almost 800 million. And there's also EOS on the list for uh, 5 million. <laughs> yeah, I was. that's why I just said centralized AWS chains earlier. <laughs> Got it. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Man. What a... I, I don't know. I... It's just one of those things in which it's just constantly existing within our space, yet it's not like I'm calling on the authorities to prosecute the wrongdoings of a specific organization, but it's just surprising and shocking that we're in such early days that something that can seem like such a blatant and obvious scam can persist to this day. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, like I said, I'm less assured that it's like a blatant and obvious scam than i think some people are like i could also see that you know the way this was like all of the people printing like all of those you know things that push the price up was for instance money coming out of china so it was you know yuan and you know i the whole they had to try to like payment processing plus they had to try to convert like i can see that it could be quite com complicated even if it was like theoretically legit activity and don't make me out for a bit finex apologist i mean let's as you said like they right. got hacked and they just decided to like socialize the losses like oh <laughs> you're all getting a 36 percent haircut haha <laughs> um, right meanwhile they're made they made crazy amounts money on the you know on the trading volume and they never like paid those people back um not even to mention their token sale and whatnot but yeah anyway we should probably move on because this is yeah there's uh there's like an interesting much. side story connected to what you're saying so last year um at consensus i went to one of the after parties and like almost no one showed up but one of the people that i ended up talking to um he knowingly was essentially helping uh, Chinese citizens escape capital controls and helping them cash out into Tether, right? So they didn't want, they were basically escaping capital controls in China 
um, using blockchain technology, um, but they didn't want to be exposed to um, price risk the same way that uh, holding Ether or Bitcoin would. And um, they were basically buying Tether. So he had an OTC Tether trading desk, basically helping match buyers and sellers of Tether as a way to like circumvent uh, Chinese currency controls. And it was really interesting, mainly because I asked him and I'm like, hey, what do you think about like all of these potential nefarious activities or the fact that Tether isn't fully backed? And it was really interesting because he seemed, first of all, a little shocked that like this type of investigation and this type of fraud could be ongoing. But it was also kind of a resignation in the sense that like this is still a deep market and he essentially like people were desperate enough to continue using it because of its depth um, because they essentially needed to get their money out of a communist country with capital controls and they're kind of desperate and this currently happens to be like the market with the most depth so like he basically told me even if it was not backed one-to-one right and there was some very shady nefarious dealings like he didn't really see an alternative um which i found really interesting and it also shows you kind of the difference between like the depth of the market of tether which is like supposed to be i don't know something like five billion assets outstanding um versus die which i think has dipped below a hundred million again um, I think there is a cap on total die issuance at around a hundred million, if I'm not mistaken, which would make yes. it the second second most traded. But that's still a factor of fifty x between the actual market caps of these two coins. Um, yeah, there's only ninety three million die as of the time of recording, and that's actually because it went up something like. 7 million over the last few days or something like that. Right, because they basically because the stability fee the, went way back down. Yeah, yeah, the stability fee currently is like 5.5%. Um, right. And it was almost 18% at one point, right? Um, it was 22 and a half very briefly, if I recall correctly. Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> volatile markets, but yeah, it's um, definitely interesting in the scale of the total the totality of some of these markets um it also kind of shows you that sometimes the most decentralized protocol doesn't necessarily bring the most customers people are using it for a very specific reason and i think the real motivation behind using tether is essentially kind of avoiding regulated exchanges and um avoiding foreign capital controls so as as for another topic um yeah did you want to give a brief overview regarding the quick update on eth2 yeah sure there was a new spec release which was version 0.9 for phase zero um they're also working through you know um so background which you know 
probably is is not new if you listen to the show regularly but you know originally there was going to be a thousand and twenty four shards on any two they have lowered that by a factor of 16 down to 64 and they have raised the throughput per shard by a factor of eight and now they are going to crosslink the the every every block basically every, every so um instead of a, a less synchronous uh design that would crosslink the shards less frequently so that's basically what they are what the research team is working on and the client teams as well are updating to that spec and yeah that's i think we're still at some sort of eth2 go live well phase zero go live date probably in q1 um you know they're still working on networking and optimizing and you know getting everything production ready so i think we'll probably have a a large multi-client testnet in the next you know predicting deadlines is hard but uh, shipping dates it's hard but you know i would assume by the end of the year and so yeah yeah the two deadlines that i heard were basically um middle of december or like if that's missed then they're gonna push it after christmas until the middle of january and you totally broke up there um i said that the deadlines were the middle of december and if that doesn't go through then for a testnet for the testnet yeah for the multi-client testnet if that doesn't go through then they're pushing it back to the middle of january but deadlines are notoriously hard to get but um yeah, Danny purposely has been avoiding saying any sort of time frame for that just on purpose. I mean, it doesn't really matter that much anyway, right? Like, what really matters is, you know, getting it all out to auditors and optimized and whatnot. I mean, obviously, there does need to be testnet testing. I, I guess but. what also matters now more than anything else is the security of what is released. Yeah. Because it's, I think we're past the point of rollback. So the, the the good thing, what I said about the the shards and cross-linking change is that it means that phase one and phase two should probably show up quite a bit sooner. And also we'll have better developer experience. Should be easier to develop things that are similar to what they are now. So It also introduces the aspect of having... Um, does it actually propose how cross shard transactions will work? Is that part of it or is that part of phase zero? No. Okay. That still seems like a difficult unresolved problem. So general. phase phase one is data availability. Mm -hmm. So, you know, just all the stuff for doing layer two stuff like roll up and plasma and, um, state channels as well, I suppose. And uh, phase two is is the execution environments. You, what do you say? Like it's not like cross shard transactions. Um, I don't know if it's like an unsolved problem. I just think it hasn't been entirely engineered yet. So there is still work to be done. 
Um, Vitalik actually had a ETH research post, which I linked to in the newsletter, which was about um, implementing crush our transactions by sequentially processing receipts. So, I mean, it's kind of similar to what they were already um, talking about with a receipt mechanism, but just sort of building out a little bit more as to how it'll work. Yeah, that's that seems like one of the most difficult and probably the biggest explosion in complexity regarding the sharding protocol in general. It's um, how do you handle kind of how do you handle finality, essentially, if you have transactions that are dependent on information from multiple chains, but. It does actually seem that the new shard design proposal would make this easier and it could potentially simplify the design of future layers. Um, but it also does yeah. seem like reducing the number of shards from 1,024 to 64 puts it closer in direct comparison to um, other delegated proof of stake systems why well like what what does the number of shards have to do with dpos there's this um i forgot who the exact quote was from specifically but um, they basically said something like I don't know how many nodes is required to be decentralized, but it seems like 16 or 18 or however many EOS was doing wasn't enough. Um, and it was basically an article explaining the meaninglessness of decentralization as a word, because it doesn't have a measurable metric, but, um, I think there are existing delegated proof of stake systems with up to, I think Cosmos has 24. Uh, yeah, but so ETH2 is going to have a lot more than, than those number of nodes, right? Like it's going to have thousands of thousands of nodes. I reshard shard nodes than, than that, right? So, um, Got it. So because yeah, like I was, I thought you were actually going to say this is this is like makes it like near, which is true. Like this, the the current ETH two system is basically like near, basically copied ETH two, and then they changed to sixty four shards a couple months ago, and now ETH two has changed to sixty four shards, and definitely some of the design choices were 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 similar, but. Um, yeah, I mean, you still have to worry about about having enough people on every shard that it's not corruptible. Mm, so okay. you, you, there will still be, I mean, there will still be thousands of validators. Okay, and I'm reading through the uh, primary reasons for reducing the total number of shards. And one of them is that each committee must have a minimum number of, uh, minimum safe number of validators. And that there just can't be enough uh, validators on 1,000 plus 1,024 nodes um, with 32 ETH each per validator to basically secure it. 
that's a pretty good reason. And it also reinforces the idea that validators, multiple validators are attached to um, each shard. Yeah, it's... <laughs> I have so many questions regarding like how this will work and how this will scale and how various layers of this will scale, but um, honestly, I'm kind of waiting. <laughs> I'm waiting to see how some of these things will be addressed. Um, so if you see the um, diagram that we're going to attach, you'll see the previous cross-shard communications approximately. And it shows basically cross-shard communications about every four blocks um, with blocks not actually going to um, each node directly. It's like kind of a loose connection while the new shard design shows a direct connection between one block to all of the blocks essentially um, for each block. And the first thing that I would think would be that there's a lot more network traffic between the various shards since essentially in the diagrams you could see that there are a lot more lines drawn between each block. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The, the The burden on the beacon chain is one of the reasons why they cut it down as well. Got um, it. Yes, because if you, I mean, there, there, it's gonna, yeah. it's still gonna be like a hundred. I think the number is like one hundred and twenty-eight validators per shard. Like that was always the 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 target, and I think it's gonna be more than that now. Now that there's only sixty-four. A hundred and twenty-eight right? validators per shard. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. Okay. So let's say, yeah. That's interesting. Does that mean you have like uh? at most 128, one out of 128 um, chance of winning the mining reward for each round? Um, I don't... Uh, it's been a while since I checked that part of the spec, but I'm pretty sure you just get... I don't think it's like a mining reward thing. I, I think it's a a deterministic... You get a certain amount per time period not a probabilistic payment like bitcoin or mm. eth mining where you get a in the long run you know in the long run you get similar to the hash rate you put in over that time period like i think this is more like you have a validator you get the x number x percent return Okay, that makes sense. Like, cause it, right? Cause it, I, I, I mean, I'm almost certain of this. I just haven't checked in a while, but like, I mean, proof of work, you are actually like, it's, it's random, right? You're getting lucky and you're trying to find this thing. And in proof of stake, it's the opposite. Like, you are, you are doing the, you're doing the work. So you should get paid as you do it, basically, right? Like, if, if you are online and, voting and not meeting any slashing conditions of which there are in, in ETH2, then you get your reward. That makes sense. Yeah, okay. And also the withdrawal period is, um, there is a cooldown period, so you can't just withdraw your stake instantly. So as a result, it doesn't 
have to pay out a block reward every block or uh, proportionally so either especially if you're basically locked in for like a three-month period minimum i think yeah i haven't kept up with that part of the spec either i think they've they've um done some some like i think vitalik in particular didn't like the idea of like a super long wait period and so there's now some different um mechanisms which i think one of them is you only you only have to wait a really long period of time if a whole bunch of people are trying to exit at the same time got it okay that makes sense so so um, let's see what else should we talk about <laughs> i was thinking when can i lock up my ether as a commitment and because i originally thought that was going to be at this devcon that you could actually deposit into a um, a specific contract on Ethereum one to lock up your Ether as a validator. Indeed, it was originally supposed to be at DevCon five that they were going to have this like look at our our deposit contract goes live. Except, I, I mean, I think Justin was the one in particular who said it, and I would say that not everybody agreed with him um, because. Like, does it really make sense to start collecting ETH before, like, the system is is ready to go live? I, I think some people disagreed with that. Um, but really, the main reason why it didn't go live, like that, the deposit contract is ready to go. In fact, I the it's even been formally verified, but the BLS standardization hasn't happened yet, and. Um, they are waiting on the IETF, but they might not even have to wait on that. They might just wait for, you know, a bunch of blockchains. They're supposed to get together and, and come up with their own sort of standard. And once they do, then they might end up just using that, even if IETF ends up using something else, <laughs> which, by the way, if that sounds familiar to you, <laughs> like the reason why we have uh Ketchak, right? Um like the reason why Ethereum uses Ketchak two fifty six is because they were going to use SHA three and then they the, that that was what was planned to be standardized as SHA three. Ethereum decided to use it and then SHA three made a they made a change and so SHA three is now different and we're now using Ketchak 256 instead of Shothbray. So, and I've actually personally and professionally <laughs> encountered that problem, and it's a minor padding change. However, if you use it, it's not NIST standardized, so it's a minor inconvenience. But I can see that becoming an issue as well. Um, it's interesting to know that uh, international bodies are actually trying to standardize uh, BLS signatures. It seemed like something that was used by the Zcash community, and it definitely seems to be um, a uh, elliptic curve that more and more people are gravitating towards, and it's super powerful, and I'm very interested in it as well. But there's also the fact that 
by committing to um, an elliptic curve early, there's like not a lot of infrastructure behind it either. So there aren't hardware wallets yet that support BLS from the best of my knowledge, for example. And there's like a lot of infrastructure that needs to be built around that. Um, I would have liked to be able to signal the commitment to um, allocate like a 32 ETH to a validator. But at the same time, I kind of now understand the <laughs> argument that Justin Drake was making in the fact that it might have actually been premature to commit to something, especially since all of the details on how it is being done isn't fully finalized. Um, not to mention, I've also been following the Prismatic Labs team's update regarding the uh, Go ETH2 implementation, and they were also... If you look through their Git commits and their issues, they're working around the fact that there isn't a standardized BLS implementation. Um, there's definitely not an optimized BLS implementation, and they've been having to do a lot of workarounds, including like putting an asterisk to all of their um, their testing and their benchmarking, specifically because of that as well. Yeah, and actually, it's funny they they had the their BLS library. Um, somebody showed up on their GitHub and randomly like made a bunch of optimizations for them. This was maybe a month ago, and they didn't know who he was. And then in this recent, most recent update, they said like, "Oh, and and we you know we found out who this guy was, and we met him at DevCon. He's actually a famous Japanese photographer or photographer cryptographer, <laughs> <laughs> and." Uh, you know he's been around for a while and like he you know it, it's uh yeah it's pretty it's pretty cool he just showed up and like you know reduced our overhead by a factor of 10 and um like made our our bls library so much better so uh yeah i mean i would actually say that that's actually one of the amazing things about ethereum is that it keeps having really smart people show up because these problems are really interesting, right? So if you want to work on really interesting, multidisciplinary technical problems, like what else is better in the world today than, you know, quote unquote, blockchain? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, like even blockchain even sounds a little bit weird when I say it, right? And I like work in this space, but uh, yeah, I it's... Uh, it, it, I, it's it's true i mean this is like a very uh interesting space where frankly i see a lot of people saying dumb things all the time like smart people saying dumb things because it's just not an area that they know much about like economics for example um so you know there's there's still a lot of basic things to be done and uh, oh on that note too yeah yeah totally uh, on that note, I was going to say that um, the the uh, Carl Bikaisen, uh published a bunch of EIPs around these BLS um, stuff. So just things like public, key, you know, key generation and deterministic and account hierarchy and key stores and whatnot. So um, you know, it's the the stuff is is happening but um yeah 
as you said, like there are no hardware wallets yet. And so we, that's part of the reason is publish that is to make sure there's all these standards that, that occur. Yeah. I'm, um, I'm super interested. And the, the most fascinating thing is that once we do move to something like VLS, we've already kind of entered this strange realm in the previous implementation of Ethereum. We've been working using existing state of the art, but now we're at the point in which we have attracted enough intelligent, hardworking people that are at the top of their field in which we are creating the state of the art, um, the verifiable delay function being used by Ethereum being uh, one example in which like we weren't happy with any of the alternatives. So Justin Drake and went down a deep research uh, black hole and emerged with a new solution <laughs> and they open sourced all of it and they even are creating an open source architecture of the physical hardware that it would run on. Um, it's It shows the maturity of the space at the same time. It also, it's kind of worrying that <laughs> we're using so much experimental uh, cryptography um, and being at the forefront of a profession that has typically been known for its timidity and reluctance to uh, change. Um, the implementation of elliptic curve cryptography took probably like 20 years at least with a lot of testing. And now the fact that we're essentially switching to um, a new type of cryptographic curve that has had probably, I could safely say it's less than 10 decades of uh, research behind it. It's uh, it's interesting. <laughs> it just shows how, like, essentially the space attracting smart cryptographers contributing to an open source um, project has kind of led to um, the space becoming the testing ground and the breeding ground, not only of alternative, creative, new business models, but um, also the engineering that's required to actually make it happen in real life and to work. It's... Uh, yeah, I mean, zero knowledge proofs have been around since the 80s, but there was no reason to use them. And so nothing happened really. And it's only now with this stuff, blockchains, that people are now like money is going into making it all usable. But the idea and like the thing, I mean, it was, it's from the, like that paper is from the 80s. Yeah. And Zcash was the first production application of a zero knowledge proof system. They were on the main stage last year at DevCon and people were theorizing about how they could potentially use zero knowledge proofs. And I don't know if it was like three, two or three months later um, at a ETH Global Hackathon in Berlin, uh, Barry Whitehat and like a small team actually implemented a zero knowledge proof system on Ethereum already three months after kind of theorizing about the possibility. And I don't know, something like seven, 10 months later at this current DevCon, um, there are multiple tracks of research on how to implement zero knowledge proofs, some of which are in production on mainnet currently. And 
yeah, it's definitely partially because the money that's being put into it, but it's as if the entire field of research has essentially been accelerated and become more risk-taking. Um, definitely the economic incentives align for it. And uh, yeah, it's <laughs> it's hard to keep up. <laughs> I, I should say, though, that like BLS curves have been around for a while. Like, I'm not exactly sure how long, but I think it is actually 15 years or something. Okay. Um, but yeah, I mean, this, I mean, this is definitely on the, on the, on the forefront of okay. all the stuff. I mean, it's, it's, so yeah, OBLS it's cool signature stuff. is a Bonet Lynn, um, Shakeman signature scheme. Um, and Bonet has been, uh, working cryptography for about 25 years. So at most yeah, so 25 we, years. <laughs> so the, the funny thing is, is that there is, there is so uh, we might have we might have transposed them. There is the Bonet Lynn Shockham signature scheme. Yes. BLS BLS SIG scheme. Yeah. And then there is the and by the way, don't get me wrong, I'm looking this up because I never remember the names, but um, there is the Barreto. Uh, hold on, this is the one I this is the one I's name I just forgot. Um, Give me just a second. The Barreto uh, Lynn. Did I get that right? Ah, I just had it and I lost it. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, Barreto Lynn Scott. That's right. Yeah, Barreto Lynn Scott. Yeah. So yeah. Um, it's, I mean, it's funny because we like, we, we say BLS and we often, if you are not a hardcore cryptographer, you always have to like stop yourself and ask like, are we talking about the curves? Or are we talking about the six? Mm, okay. Um, so we're actually using the Barreto Lynn Scott curve. Yeah. Although the, what, um, I, what I believe that there, and again, I'm not a cryptographer, but I'm pretty sure that what we're actually waiting on the, the standardization for is the BLS six. Yes, we are, because they're pairing-friendly signatures, which have right. very interesting properties. Um, I'm not a cryptographer, but they pairing-friendly uh, signature schemes um, allow for easy um, multi-party SIGs. So if you ever asked why is it so difficult to have a multi-SIG in Ethereum without a smart contract, it's essentially because the um, cryptographic curve used has um, has something in it that makes it uh, more difficult to create like multi-sigs. It's I don't want to step out of line and explain something that might be inaccurate, so I'll leave it at that. But in a, in essence, it is much easier to create. Um, N of M signatures using uh, BLS signatures. And well, so it's, yeah, it's because they're pairing friendly uh, curves, essentially. So I, I will, 
yeah, I hope this was useful for those people who are not cryptographers to hear two amateurs talking about cryptography. <laughs> Stuff gets complicated pretty quick. Um, yeah. Do you want to move on? I was going to give a couple quick hits of like things I thought were also interesting over Please the do. last week. Sure. So there was a Rahul from Connext wrote a, an article about, you know, a starter kit repo for a TypeScript environment using Builder, Ethers.js, and Waffle. Um, you know, I think the tooling is constantly evolving in the space, and that's a big one. Um, there was also, uh, you know, consensus diligence reviewed Viper and the and the compiler, and basically said, don't use it yet on mainnet. It's not ready for production. Um, you know, that's not a surprise, but it's uh, always, you know, useful to have somebody tell you that because there are some things in production using viper like uniswap and hayden from uniswap the founder of uniswap actually wrote a a sort of a history of uniswap that he published this year and i thought it was really fascinating it he went from basically having never written code to shipping uniswap in a little over a year and you know he was a mechanical engineer that got laid off from his job at siemens and he managed to ship a fundamental piece of infrastructure in a brief period of time. And I would say one of the reasons for that is that in some ways, being a software developer right now is not the best career in order to become a Ethereum developer. It, you could argue, and this is not my observation, but you could argue that something like a, a Mechie or an, an electrical engineer, like somebody or even physics but like somebody doing much more like deterministic or very process heavy like building hardware kind of deal is a better analogy for you know building 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 dApps building you know writing solidity code because the margin for error is so much lower uh, than it is with, you know, web to move fast and break things. So as I've told my dad, like we are, you know, it's the era of computing has we've, we've come full cycle from, you know, my father used to program using punch cards and computing time was super valuable. And so you had to go over your code for weeks and months before you would go in and, you know, use your punch card on that time that you'd reserved on the computer. And then we, got into web two or just move fast and break things. And I think we're back a little bit towards the freak out over every little line of code. So in terms Sorry, of that was gas a bit of optimization and limited compute space, it's a really good yeah. way to be introduced um, with fundamental limitations and compute to solidity. There was a, I really liked the article. I haven't finished it. Um, but I did want to read uh, the exchange between Hayden and Carl Flush, uh, Flush. Uh, yeah, he's at the Flush. I think is how people say it. Yeah, he's the one who had the great um, optimistic roll-up talk from last week, and basically, 
Hayden says, I just got laid off. And Carl goes, congratulations. This is the best thing that could have happened to you. Mechanical engineering <laughs> is a dying field. Ethereum is the future <laughs> and you're still early. Your new destiny is to write smart contracts. <laughs> <laughs> that's such a, that's so Carl. That's great. Yeah. I know. And just like his enthusiasm <laughs> in saying it too. I. <laughs> Uh, I guess the last thing. Oh, by the way, Hayden Hayden does think that none of the Viper bugs in the compiler affect him that they found. Like uh, he thinks he's he's safe. But anyway, the last thing I was gonna say is there's an article about DeFi making ETH unforkable, mm -hmm. which is worth reading. I actually don't really agree. Uh, maybe maybe I shouldn't have gotten into this because it's more of probably a longer argument. But I would say that one we've always known that apps make it hard like working apps make it hard to have a fork and that was one of the reasons why the dao could actually have a fork is not only was the eth locked up in the dao for 30 days or something so it was even possible which like basically any other you know any other fork like that would never be possible but also just when there are multiple apps like how do you how do you have a fork when you end up breaking things so uh, right. I I also I think read it's that. not as yeah. I think it's not as obvious that that like somebody like USDC can just decide, but but we'll see. Um, I think it's I, I think it's going to be interesting whenever something does happen, like say ProgPal, because also one of the things that ETH has always said is that you know you can if you're in the minority you can just fork off. Well. It's gonna. I think it's gonna end up being a lot more complicated in the future. So it'll be interesting to see. By but, the way, I love the ability to tell someone to fork off when you disagree with them. <laughs> I, I hope that never yeah. goes away. Just go fork off. Yeah. yeah. Why not? It's it's so much worse than like. I I think it's even worse to tell someone to try a hard spoon. But... <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. on that note. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, I agree with you 100% um, that I don't think it's as simple as the ar uh, argument of uh, DeFi made Ethereum unforkable. You can't say that the chain itself is unforkable because of off-chain collateral, because in the end, whichever chain has the most users, the weight and economic value, um, that's going to dictate what people recognize as valid in um in their off-chain collateral so i think we can actually just look at what happened at previous forks with coinbase coinbase just sat on both forked coins until the market decided and well they did some insider trading and sold some of their own internal tokens off helping decide winners between the forks but yeah that's uh that's for the courts to really unravel but essentially what they did is they just sat on ass until the markets decided what happens because exchanges fundamentally are broken when something is forked because they don't know which is the you don't have finality. So right. if they preemptively decide that, oh, this is like this is a fork and this is the real thing. Right. It's not like 
that is going to decide where the most of the value and hash rate and everything else within the ecosystem goes quite the opposite if they make an early decision and they start letting people withdraw their actual collateral from a forked chain and then all of a sudden they have to revert all of their transactions later they would be the ones liable, right? So I think they would be the last people to actually jump in front of the bus and make this like yes or no decision. Um, but yeah, I think I think they kind of got it the other way around. I think centralized exchanges like Coinbase are more exposed um, to fork risks and they would be much more likely to essentially not make any decision, not take any position, and just be passive and let the market decide. And they'll just hold withdrawals until it's decided like they have previously. And uh, once the market has made a decision, then they'll follow it because they don't want to lose their collateral. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm probably closer to you um, in that like also exchanges generally like, hey, more assets that are easy to support means more trading volume, which is good for us, right? <laughs> right. More money. Yeah, I mean, um, they eventually supported Bcash, right? They, I think they currently list uh, Ethereum Classic as well. Like, they don't care, <laughs> right? It's just that they waited uh, until Ethereum Classic was, like, this, I, it, like, low-level alt uh, before actually supporting it because they didn't want people actually confusing it with, actual ether and they didn't want to be held liable for that confusion so they basically waited until many months until the fork happened before even listing the uh the forks so i think the interesting there though is thing there is if there are two forks in the meantime with something like maker which runs on oracles so the that that article made it out like the Oracle would only go to one chain. Well, the Oracle might actually go to two chains, right? Like the, I mean, maker might for example, decide we don't want to be the ones that decide we're neutral on this. So we're going to put Oracles on both chains. In fact, I think they would probably put Oracles on both chains. If there's even any reasonable argument, that would be my guess. But in that case with value splitting up, it does actually, it's complicated, right? Because if value splits up, then a lot of things get margin called on both chains. <laughs> right. right. So, but like, that's... I, I mean, I just think it's complicated. I don't, I, I think, I think people thinking that they have modeled it all out and are very confident as to what's going to happen. I disagree with that. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. I agree. Um, but don't get me wrong. I love the narrative, but I feel it's kind of wishful thinking. <laughs> yeah yeah exactly i i think the future is often weirder than we expected today <laughs> <laughs> that i can agree with well i think we should cut it off here and say uh see you in the weird future indeed adios adios see ya